Hello, thank you for joining us on this Exponential Hub Show. This is a hub show talking about minimalist, mega, and micro hybrid churches. My name is Jason Shepard. I'm glad to host with you. I'm the founder and lead pastor of Church Project in the Woodlands, uh, Texas, and Church Project Network and House Church Network. My sidekick and co-host, who I like to travel everywhere with, is my buddy and colleague, Dave Edwards. Dave, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jason. Great to be here today. Good to see you, man. Thanks for doing life with me and these things Absolutely, with me. Man. And then it. we're honored to have a mutual friend and somebody who's really poured into my life and taught me so much, Bill Hole. Bill has done so much in the world of discipleship. I'm honored that he's here. Uh, I met Bill years ago when a mutual friend of mine and Bill's knew that I would really benefit from a relationship with Bill. So uh, I think that he paid Bill for a while to be my friend. <laughs> and, uh, and it worked. And uh, I was so glad to spend a lot of time with Bill over the years and then intermittently. And so in addition to reading uh, many of his books and listening to a lot of his teachings and a lot of his readings and writings, uh, we've been able to spend some one on one time together here in the Woodlands. And I'm really honored that he's with us here today. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking time out to be with us today. It's great to be with you, Jason and Dave. Uh, Glad you're here. Yeah, just it's very comfortable looking at you guys and being able to talk with you. Same with you, Bill. Um, I have found Bill to be incredibly humble, intelligent, articulate, intentional, and effective. Uh, I wrote to myself some notes about this, that Bill's a thought leader while also caring very individually about people. And he really helps not only people who follow Christ, but pastors and church leaders. And so, Bill, thanks for being with us. Would you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself, maybe uh, yourself, your family, where you live, uh, your work, your ministry, that kind of stuff? I think that probably the smartest thing I could do is say nothing, because after the introduction, uh, the, uh, as the proverb says, that even a fool seems wise if he does not speak. So I, uh, but I will... Yes, I'm uh, from Indiana. Uh, I grew up uh, and up and up until I was taller than most people. So I picked up basketball and I was a classic underachiever in the classroom, but an overachiever on the basketball court. And so that got me into college. And I went out to Oklahoma where I played college basketball and I met my wife, Jane, of 52 years now. Yeah. And then uh, I surprised her. She thought she was going to marry a <laughs> athlete. And I told her, nope, I'm going to become a preacher. Wow. <laughs> so that was a curve. But <laughs> she hung with me and we um, uh, ended up playing more basketball, actually, for a team called Athletes in Action for several years. And then uh, went to seminary, started pastoring, and it's just been a tremendous thing. I, I, I guess, in general, I'm overwhelmed with God's goodness and grace to me and my family that he lets me get in on what he's doing. And yeah, yeah. to me, this is the greatest joy of life. I love that, Bill. And uh, I think you, among you know, the few people in the, in the way that you are the most 
seem to follow the leading of the spirit so well and find the place where you're going to be most used. I know for a while that was pastoring in the local church and you pastored for uh, how many years did you pastor in the local church? 20. And then you transitioned into other avenues of ministry where God's really used you. What was that transition like? What precipitated that change? Well, I was, I like being a pastor and I was a good, solid pastor, but I got bit by the discipleship bug real early, right in college. And I, I started out as a pastor seeing that the church is really a place where you make disciples, but that you can't really make disciples in the church building as much as you need to leave the church building in order to be the church. And in 1970s, that was a little bit radical because all the arrows pointed inward yeah. toward going to church. So I started off as a young pastor, and at some point around in my mid-30s, I started writing about the subject because no one seemed to be talking about making disciples in a local church. Mm. And all the everybody was writing about making disciples in parachurch organizations with students and so on. So I started writing about this particular subject, and that was the trajectory of my life. That was the driving force is that I became like a discipleship evangelist yeah. in the church and to others, and it, it manifested itself in writing. So at some point, after about 20-some years, and because of the books I had written, I was asked to train other leaders. And so that's what led me to make that transition out of pastoral life into a more discipleship evangelist life and to like John Wesley, you know, the world becomes your parish. You know, that's really interesting to me. Um, and I probably want to push into this part of your story a little bit, because I think it's relevant to what we're trying to do on this hub show. And we're, we're trying to find these tension points here between the the calling of the church and the expression of it in the local church. Um, not only can a church be a mega church and accomplish these things, but what is supposed to be happening in the form and function of the local church. And so, you know, to have a deep heart for discipleship in the local church and say it's not happening there and then leave there to help it happen. What, What's that process look like in your mind when you say this needs to happen in the local church? It's not happening in the local church. So I need to leave the pastoring a local church in order to help that happen more in the local church. How does that um, express itself in your calling more specifically? I don't think it happens like overnight. It's not something that one day you wake up and say, you know, I'm really tired of this. I think I'll go out and prove something. Uh, that was not what I was thinking or feeling. Uh, I, some of the greatest friends and the greatest joys I had were in pastoring. Yeah. Because I don't think there's a better vehicle for making disciples than a community. Yeah. Because it really isn't even that valid outside of community and living together. Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer, Life Together, that little booklet that he wrote about the two years that he led that illegal seminary in Finkenwalde, uh, 23 students, 
And he, the book that's been his best-selling book ever is called Life Together. Yeah. And so that's about the whole idea that we were living life together. I mean, some of the greatest joys I had was meeting with five or six guys early in the morning over breakfast and talking about what are we going to do this week? Because we none of us really knew. But yeah. all we knew was the driving force was we we're disciples and we're going to make other disciples. And that meant different things to us as we matured and grew together as men and leaders of our family and so on. But I think um, at some point, it separates, making disciples requires a commitment. And it, if you're going to, there's an old saying, if you want to be something you've never been before, you need to do something you've never done before. Mm -hmm. And so that the stuff that you've never done before would be, okay, uh, we're going to start writing down some names of people that we'd like to form into groups, and we're going to spend time with them, and we're here are some of the things we want to teach them, and when they push back, we're going to try to coach them into doing that, doing things they really don't want to do so they can become everything they've ever wanted to be. Yeah. And so that, that was kind of where we, I started it. And, and, you know, it's only in that crucible of working with people who push back and push back. But at some point, it's like Paul, you know, I, I'm going through the book of Acts with a group of people. And one of the things that keeps reminding me of it is Paul goes into, you know, synagogue strategy. He goes to these cities and he goes to the synagogue. And in Ephesus in particular, it says he, he went there and uh, he dialogued with them and he spoke boldly or freely. And then at some point, they became obstinate. At some point, they opposed him. And so he took the believers and left. Yeah. And I think that, but there's some point to try to answer the question. Uh, there's a point where you, you say, okay, I know enough. I've done enough. I've proven enough to myself and to others. And I have enough authenticity that now maybe I can step out of this and help other people because I've learned about everything I'm going to learn doing this. Yeah. Well, and for the greater church, I'm glad you did because you've helped me and so many in learning how to practice discipleship in a local church context. Um, and I, I think there are pastors who are starting, it seems to me, to realize more and more, and I'm grateful for this awakening that I think we're all seeing and it seems to be increasing um, that pastors are saying, I'm not pastoring a context where real discipleship is happening. We've been trying to gather a crowd on Sundays to do something, and that's not bad. It's good, and Jesus would do that. But we're not really effectively making disciples in relational community context, as you're referring to. We're not doing, as Bonhoeffer said, and you just said, life together. And so, as you're speaking and writing and teaching on this for the local church, what is, what is discipleship first? Uh, can we just briefly say what is discipleship and then what is a disciple? Sure. Well, I think a disciple is a person who has decided to follow Jesus and learn from him how to live their life hmm. as though he were living it. Now, I have to give some credit to Dallas Willard for that definition because part of it is from him. But the idea is that what makes me a disciple? Well, I believe theologically and practically, it's where I begin to follow Jesus. So 
you can cloak that in your particular understanding of theology, but I, I would simply say it's when the Holy Spirit brings to your attention that you need to repent of your sins, believe the good news, and follow Jesus, that you are in the place where you can respond to the gospel. Mm. And that makes you a Christian. That makes you a disciple. That makes you a follower. So I think that's what a disciple is. Um, I think discipleship is, you know, when you put the word, in English anyway, when you put the word ship on the end of a word, it means the state of. So the state of discipleship is means I've put myself into submission to Christ, to in humility to follow him and learn from him. And, and I, I go from being like Paul on the Damascus Road, went from being a driven person to being a led person because he was blind and somebody had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. And from that point forward, he was a person that was led. And I think as a disciple, we are led, and it frees us from being driven. Or, And no one should ever leave the pastorate to go into helping other churches because they want to develop their brand or because they want to develop right, right. an organization or because right. they want to make a name for themselves. You know, that is all not only stupid, it is also ungodly, and uh, I reject it. And that, yeah. wasn't, that was not my motivation oh no i uh you you have a voice i think you know i think a continuum of bonhoeffer to willard to you that is really helping the church understand what we should be doing as pastors and so your voice and that's why you're here today i think is to help a lot of pastors who are here to start to take on the responsibility of creating this culture, this context for discipleship community in their church. And so, you know, Bill, what would you say and what do you say to pastors to help them understand? A lot of pastors would be watching this today, a lot of church leaders. What would you say to them to help them understand their responsibility for creating this context for a discipleship community in their church? What is the responsibility, the perspective, a shift in mindset for a pastor now to, uh, to start thinking about his primary role in the church? Well, I know it's harder for some than others because not everyone has been coached in it. Not everyone's been taught it uh, because we've been trained oftentimes simply to preach that we think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the Word of God, and then people right. will, you know, when I, when I first start off as a pastor, 30 years old, preaching, I, I, was, I really thought, preach it and they will come. You know, it was, it was just this idea that, that people, like they did for Chuck Swindoll, and they did for John yeah. MacArthur, and they did for this person or that person. And I preached, and a few people stayed, is what happened. <laughs> that it, it, it didn't create this big movement. <laughs> and, and so, oh, I want to have to roll my sleeves up here and do something. And because essentially I'm called to make disciples and I am the, the lead disciple maker. And so the first thing I have to do is yeah. make sure I'm a disciple, make sure I'm for real. Hmm. Because otherwise we have a non-starter here. If I'm a guy with a religious job, you know, I used to ask myself, if I wasn't, didn't have this job as the pastor of this church, would I go to church? 
Would I be a good member? Uh, would I be one of these guys in the back row, giving, putting excuses up? Or would I even be here at all? May I be playing golf? So the thing that I had to come to terms with, am, am I the real deal? Hmm. And, and then the second thing was, if I don't know what to do as far as making disciples, then I, I, need, to, I need to find out. So get on my knees and ask God, help me, God. I need to find out what to do. That's, that's the first thing. That's square one. Yeah. And then, then the second thing is that I have the power of preaching. And, and I can create the environment because essentially the role of the preacher is I'm defining who we are as people, the world we live in, and what God has to say and how he's spoken into it and what is normal. Yeah. And I'm defining reality. I'm defining what is normal. And so if I say to the congregation, following Jesus in discipleship is a normal part of what it means to be saved, then, then people start believing that. <laughs> right. So that's, that's the first thing, because speaking is creating reality. I mean, God spoke, and there was light. Now, we can't do the, exactly the same thing, but words are reality. They do create reality. And so that's the power of the public address, the foolishness of preaching. So to me, I've often said it in my books that preaching is the first and most important role of making disciples in the local church context, mm -hmm. because everything else is like rolling a big stone up the hill. You know, as Dallas Willard used to say, being an old farm boy from southern Missouri, it's hard to plow around the pulpit. So you, <laughs> you just... You know, you keep plowing around it because you have to avoid it. No. What if you have it on the side of making disciples? So to me, the, the main responsibility of making disciples is you're, if you are a disciple, then all great ministry is autobiographical, and you invite people into your journey, into your life, and you lead them. And so when you say, follow me, yeah, it's not into a committee room. You know, it's into something much greater, yeah, something yeah. much grander than that. That's I'll so good. There, I could get rolling there. No, that's that's so good. I I like it when you're rolling, Bill. <laughs> I, I think what you just said, I'd love to press into a little bit more. I think it's so important uh, what you touched on here because I, I'm I'm a forty something. I grew up in church. I really, you know, we read everything that we read. It was all about making Sunday so great, and so we were just all trying to be the best preachers and have the best Sunday gatherings. Um, that we could have. And, and so what we, I've, I think is happening is this polarization of people who are exiting a Sunday gathering in pursuit of discipleship. Like people are leaving the corporate church to do only micro churches or only ch uh, house churches, um, or people are continuing to elevate and push up the hill, this great rock of an incredible Sunday experience. And so I think this hybrid of saying we're going to create these contexts for discipleship communities in our church and still value the Sunday gathering. I think this is the tension that I'm having so many conversations about. What is the value of the Sunday gathering? Is there a value in the Sunday gathering? 
while we're also trying to create these contexts for discipleship communities. And so I'll explain what we do here briefly, and then I'll, I'll ask you to, to answer that. Is there a value for Sunday gatherings? If so, what is it? while we're also creating a context for discipleship communities. So, for example, we have Sunday gatherings. We would say Jesus came to make disciples in everything he did. When he taught people on the mountainside by the thousands, he was making disciples. When he lived life together with people by the dozens, he was making disciples. When he was meeting needs and one-on-one, these things. We practice those, those contexts. We have forms for that function. Um, what... So we have a Sunday gathering, thousands of people come. It's so simple. There's no silver bullet. When people come to learn from our church, they're like, well, that was simple and that was easy. Uh, So what's the magic here? And we would say, well, the magic is our house churches. We are a church of house churches, Uh, but we are just a broken record talking about what a disciple is and getting people into discipleship communities. Is there a value, Bill, for churches who are watching, who have Sunday gatherings, who are realizing we're not effectively making disciples well, what is the value for them in having Sunday gatherings? Well, you've asked uh, several questions there, but I, I think that, first of all, yes, there is a great value in Sunday gatherings. Uh, if, if it were not so, it would not have been proposed to us. Uh, we wouldn't be encouraged like in Hebrews, you know, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together is the habit of some and get together, stimulate and love one another to love and good deeds. Uh, That the idea is that we come together and I, I do agree that Sunday gatherings is part of making disciples because again, you're forming a worldview and people come there and they listen, which is an important process. I mean, that's why people go to speeches. That's why people still listen to speeches. Even though we have all this technology, it's still the power of the spoken word. Hmm. And so the power of the spoken word does something to people that nothing else like it does. There's nothing else in the world like it. So what happens is and, of course, the, we believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God and that they're living and active and they're sharper than a two-edged sword. So something divine, something powerful, supernatural is going on there because the Holy Spirit is around. He's in us. He's around us. He's hovering there. He's doing what he chooses to do. And so what happens is then things start igniting in people's hearts, their souls. And as they ignite then when you call somebody to be a disciple, however, you better know what you're talking about. Hmm. What I mean is you better have a definition because when people say, what is a disciple? And they say, well, a disciple loves Jesus. Oh, a disciple walks with Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. A disciple does things for God. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, those are all right answers, but you can't, that's where ambiguity is our enemy because ambiguity Hmm. You know, you don't know if you've made one or you haven't made one. And so specificity is our friend. So you have to have a definition of a disciple that is clear enough that, I mean, I used to say, I, I say, we are called to be disciples, to make disciples. This is what a disciple is. Come to room 201 on Tuesday night at seven o'clock. <laughs> we'll show you a group that will make you into that kind of person. That, that's pretty much how simple it needs to be. So, you know, 
Now, another way you can say it is, I mean, to me, what Sunday morning is, is it's, it's so many different things, but it's a group of people that have something in common. We're all humans. We all need God. We all have the death problem. We all have, we, we all want hope and we're all sinners. And the most hopeful thing anybody could ever tell us is you're a sinner. And, and you can be saved, though, and God will do it. Yeah. And that's the most hopeful news anybody can ever hear. You're right. So once they hear that, then here's what we can do about it. This is, so now here's what we can do about it. And, and then my responsibility is then to get people into the proper environments yeah. where that actually can happen, where they can do this life together, like you said, home groups. Uh, there are, you know, some people are doing D groups. Well, listen, all these groups, it's all window dressing if you're not doing the right things in them. Yeah. It's all cosmetics. You're right. Right. So I, I just think that whether it's a large church or a small church or a medium-sized church, that to me is all window dressing in the sense that what you're really needing to work on, if you think of the church as a body, then... Um, are you working on the cardiovascular system? Because the cardiovascular system makes everything else healthy. Hmm. Yeah, mm. that's good, Bill. Thank you. You know, I, um, I think when we talk about the local church, we have to address preaching and the large gathering. It seems that the conversation that's happening right now is shifting a lot toward, and I'm very excited about it. What should uh, the small group context look like. We call it house churches for a variety of reasons. One, we, we see biblical nomenclature there. We see historical precedent there. Mm -hmm. We elevate what the group is by calling it a house church. We're getting rid of some, a lot of bad notions of what a group is by calling it something that people haven't called it before. Uh, we call our leaders pastors. They're house church pastors. Mm -hmm. They made all the biblical qualifications of an elder. Uh, their role is to oversee this as it is a little church itself. All benevolence happens there. Discipleship happens and starts there, these kind of things. But so the conversation is shifting toward what should be happening here. So as I'm following the flow of our conversation on Sunday, a pastor's job should be defining uh, discipleship, reminding people of <laughs> what a disciple is and then the pastor should be creating the context as well for discipleship to happen in community. This is a generalization, the comment I'm saying, but I do believe that most pastors that I speak with do not see their primary responsibility as creating the community for discipleship to happen. They have a groups person or a discipleship person, or somebody that does that. And I think there are a good number of pastors who have uh, allowed someone else to sort of form this context for community. I would say here, my primary calling is ensuring that we have a context for discipleship to happen in community. What is the role of a lead pastor at a church to ensure or create or correct the community happening in a dis discipleship happening in a community level. What's the role of the pastor there? 
Oh, I think it's to, uh, I mean, you go back to what was Jesus' role in creating the community, mm. what he did, and uh, he was he was the leader of it. He was the embodiment of it. Uh, I think that in large churches, when you're hired in or you create a very large congregation, it's harder because you're separating yourself relationally from people. Uh, it's almost disembodied uh, because, and the more embodied it can become, the better. What I mean by that is going back to something you mentioned, which was delegation. We delegate the task to somebody else, and then we feel like we're cleared. Now, that usually happens with a person who has not been touched in a personal way by, quote-unquote, discipleship, meaning, and most people think of discipleship as, oh, I meet with somebody every week, and we go through something together over a cup of coffee or something, and then we do that for a period of time, and then I sort of graduate out of that. Uh, that, to me, is misunderstanding it. I think that essentially it's discipleship can be practiced at various levels. So there's a, there's a corporate level, the congregational level. There's also the, the more pastoral or close-knit relational level. There is the one-on-one -on -one level, you know, the small group level. Uh, it's it all goes down, and the closer you get to people, the more intimate it gets, and the more messy it becomes, the more difficult oftentimes it becomes. Yeah. And so I used to say to people, do you want, you have a choice in a church. You, you can have the pastoral staff doing the pastoral care, or you can have good pastoral care. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so would you rather have somebody come to your bedside who's paid to do it or would you rather have somebody they're there because they don't get criticized yeah <laughs> or or would you rather have somebody there who really is your friend who cares about you and is yeah prepared? so good okay pastors, and so in other words as you said many pastors over your house churches uh that's where you decentralize pastoral care okay that that's just one thing so the whole idea of ministry can be flattened out like that. And yeah. you can take a lot of the hierarchy out of it. But I think that as far as the pastor is concerned, uh, I believe that it's easy. The easiest one would be if you're starting a church, because you start with, uh, you know, I, I, I work with this church in Korea called Sarang Church. It's just a Korean word, which means love. Uh, and the Church of Love, it's a Presbyterian church. And they have uh, 65,000 members. <laughs> and But, the, you know, the church started with this pastor named John Oak, O-A-K, and he had like six people in his living room. And he built it based upon multiplication. You know, the simple method of Jesus, and this is what I would recommend, the simple method of Jesus is do with them what you want them to do with others. That's good. And once you do that, then it multiplies. And so it multiplied into this church of 65,000 people. Wow. Okay, now that's kind of crazy, okay? But if, if, for example, you do this with just, you know, with a church start or with a church revamp or with a middle-sized church, you know, to me, uh, the optimum 
the optimum thing is for you to be able to create the environment like you did at uh, your church, Jason. You're able to create the environment from the ground floor. Yeah, That's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And then you see it develop. Uh, I think that it's renovation is another matter. So I guess we could talk about different kinds of challenges, but it's, it's basically wherever I've been successful as a pastor, it was when I started with a group of people and I showed them what I wanted them to do. And then I helped them do it. And then we, and I taught them how to work through it and coach them. So that to me, and then finally, these guys start doing better than you could do. So I, I just think that's the beauty of it. Yeah. That's so good. So, so far we have, hey, Sunday gatherings matter because the proclamation of the word does matter. And, uh, but we need to be using that to specifically define clearly what is a disciple. And now we're also saying that a pastor's responsibility is to create or correct a context for discipleship to happen. Um, I think those two things are important because I think not a lot of Sunday gatherings are defining what discipleship is. I think a lot of pastors are missing that, uh, not preaching about what a true disciple is. I mean, eat my flesh, drink my blood, take up my cross, deny yourself, follow me. I mean, this is the mm -hmm. preaching of Jesus that I think should be happening on Sundays. Creating or, or taking on the responsibility for the context of community in the church uh, I think those are the steps that we're seeing now uh, so far. Bill, what are you excited about and what are you concerned about as you travel and speak and teach and consult for churches? What are you excited about that you're seeing and what are you concerned about? What I'm excited about is the resurgence and the renaissance of making disciples. And I, you know, I, it worries me, but, you know, everything at some level can worry you. But I'm very excited about the idea that the church and especially the younger leaders, I mean, about five years ago, six or seven years ago, I'd go to Exponential and you'd really not hear the word disciple. And then I started hearing it by, and I'm talking about the plenary speakers and themes. And then I started hearing it. And then after about like three years in, everybody's talking about it. <laughs> and it's becoming more and more popular, you see. And then so everybody's starting to think in terms of, you know, we've tried, we've tried evangelism, we've tried, uh, we've tried global events, we've tried prayer, we've tried, you see, because Americans, we're just so good at taking anything that's good about that God gives us and we use it <laughs> as a church growth instrument. Yeah. So, and we, we, we actually, uh, and then we, I don't want to mention any names, but as far as uh, publications, but I read this one magazine in the last couple of years, and it, it was sort of like Christian porn. You know, it was like the 100 greatest of this and the 50 greatest of that and so on, you know, trying to make a list like the New York Times bestseller. And uh, like I remember Stanley Warehouse, who, uh, Howas, who at, was at Duke University, I think he retired a few years ago, but he was... <laughs> He was awarded the best theologian in America in 2001, and on September 11th, 2001, he was supposed to be presented with the award. Well, we all know what happened on 9-11, and so they canceled it. And somebody asked him what he thought about winning the award later, and he says, well, I didn't know best was the theological category. 
And I, <laughs> right. I feel a little bit that way. But the, uh, so I'm excited about the fact that there is a resurgence, a renaissance in this, and we're trying to get down, stick to the knitting, you know, get back to the, what I call the cardiovascular issues, the basic blocking and tackling of what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus. That's why I love the church project so much was because it just took away, stripped away all the paraphernalia and all the cosmetics and all the normal comforts of religious life and said, hey, folks, sit down in that little chair that kind of hurts, you know, it's not big enough. It's kind of creaky. You know, it's the kind of thing you could lose in your backyard. You wouldn't care. Uh, And, uh, you know, sit down in that chair and listen to this and, uh, you know, revolution. So to me, that I like very much. Um, What uh, concerns me, what concerns me is, is a little bit, maybe beyond our control in some respects, but then again, not. You know, the church, the heyday of the church, I mean, everybody pretty much says, you know, the heyday of the church, there's not much argument about this, the first 300 years. You know, we like the first 300 years, maybe because we don't have to live through it. And uh, secondly, though, because the church grew from just a handful of people to becoming the official, most dominant religion in the Greco-Roman world in 300 years. And then, of course, you know, some things went haywire after that. But the point is that now we look at uh, what's going on. But but at the same time, the church was doing all those wonderful things, and it was powerful, and it was moving. It couldn't save Rome. Yeah. Because in 410, Rome fell. Wow. And Augustine is in Alexandria, and he is He's, he's in tears because his beloved Roman Empire has fallen. And so I think of America right now, and there's a lot to be concerned about. And sometimes people say, I had a guy the other day just tell me, what's well, the church's fault? Right. I hear that. Yeah. The mm-hmm. church's fault that the, comp- that the country is uh, coming apart culturally, that the, you know, the, the train has left the station. And there we stand on the platform as the church and go, we go, what happened? Because the change is so fast. The change seems to be out of our control. It seems like, gee, you know, the biblical worldview is losing. And we've been making disciples for 50 years, and the, and the culture is out discipling us. They're doing a better job. Well, there's some reasons for all that, which I won't get into, but what worries me is that I think like the early Christians that we, they, the difference between them and us is that they didn't have all this buffer uh, of luxury and indolence uh, and self-aggrandizement and living with what we call first world problems, my latte's cold problems. And, and that we, what concerns me is that at this moment where you don't have to be necessarily political. You, you, all you got to do to be controversial in our culture now is just say what the Bible says. Yeah. And that's all you got to do. And, and you got to stand up for it and speak up because, you know, Winston Churchill said appeasement. You know, appeasement doesn't work. He said appeasement was hoping you get eaten last. <laughs> and I, 
<laughs> I, 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 that's my concern is that we, yeah. you know, we, 10 years ago, 50% of people identified as Christians. Now it's 25%. Mm-hmm. And so that concerns me. Um, I'm not concerned about the end result, but I'm concerned about the process and our role as faithful witnesses of Christ in our culture, that are we going to have the courage to stand up and just, I don't, I'm not saying stand up to be a Republican or a Democrat, that doesn't matter. To me, the issue is stand up for what is true. Yeah. And to say, you know, what is true? Jesus, the God man, that's truth. Yeah. And, mm. and just say it. Just say what you believe. We need it for sure. Seems rare and harder to find, but I agree with you. And that, that goes back to the first 300 years. They were doing that, yeah. I think, pretty boldly. We, Dave, may, I know you love save, Bill. we may not be able to save the country, but, uh, but we, we need to be faithful witnesses because there have been millions and millions who have gone before us who have been much have been much worse situations than we are. Agreed. That's yeah, true. Dave, I know you love Bill and you guys spend time together I, and read and write. You have, say, a que- you have a yeah, question? I, I do. I, like I want to say it, everyone's listening, like when the, the most influential book for what I'm doing and and do continue to do is your book that you wrote called Jesus Christ Disciple Maker. Hmm. And it's incredible. My very first it, book, I should have stopped. That's yes, it put it all into context, <laughs> and everybody listening should read it. But I, could you speak to the minute for towards this idea? I think when when pastors say discipleship, they think curriculum. And when you said a while ago, discipleship is doing with others what you want them to do with someone else. That's not necessarily taking a class or curriculum. So how do we help people get beyond? You know, if you pull up an average website of an average church and, and that you click on discipleship, it's all classes. And we're not, how do we help people get beyond thinking in terms of a class to actually discipling somebody? Yeah, I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, the idea that you follow me, and as I always say, you better know where you're going if you have to tell people to follow you. And you know, follow me into a committee room or to a classroom is not very exciting. Uh, they need to follow, you know, follow us out the door. You know, what happens on Sunday in church is very, very important. And if we didn't do that, we couldn't do the rest of it. But once we leave, you know, that that's equally important. Yeah. That's right. the counterpart. But to answer your question, Dave, um, I'm sort of, uh, I don't know if I've given up on trying to talk people out of curriculum or not, because, um, you know, I remember this old study done, uh, pyramid study back, Peter Wagner, I think, did this along with uh, some of the people at the School for World Mission back in the 1970s. And the idea was that about 5% of people are creative, 15% are adapters, and 85%, no, 80% are programmatic. So you're always got 80% of people going, is this going to be on the test? Or could you give me three how-tos? Yeah. Or how do you do this? One, two, three, four, thank you. Uh, could you put it in a book? Could you send that to me? Uh, and so that there's a 80% of people, that's what they want because that's how they're wired. It's not a moral issue. 
So I would say that the, the, the hope for the 80% is to appreciate curriculum, but then the 15% and the five percenters are the ones who are the ones who can adapt and create. And so they end up writing the curriculum. But curriculum is a Latin word, which means a race course. So it's like taking the cones and putting them out and you follow this pathway. So that to me, that's, that's what curriculum is. But I understand how you're using it, which is something written down in a book. And uh, actually, I've written curriculum. And uh, probably all of us have. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it has value. But I don't want to be promiscuous in my curriculum. In other words, there's a lot of people that they have curriculum, but it doesn't have any connection to what they actually believe or what they're trying to accomplish. So I think that whatever you write down and have people study is it needs to have an application to it. So for example, we used to do small groups and we did four things. We studied the Bible, we prayed, we had fellowship, and we did outreach. Now, outreach is what was the catalyst there, because the outreach was we planned outreaches with non-Christians, and we'd take them to baseball games, we'd have them over for dinner, we'd do all kinds of things, and we'd pray and ask, and that we'd practice inviting, we'd role play inviting people to events or, uh, you know, building relationships with unbelievers. And that was hard. People would resist it. People would, I'd have grown people in tears about doing their assignment for the week. But we did these outreach factor. And by doing that, we brought the whole thing into life. Mm. And we actually saw fruit. Yeah. So I think that whatever you do, whatever your curriculum is, if it needs to include that element. That's really good. That's great. Bill. Pastors are watching, leaders are watching, and they're doing something. Why, why do you think most pastors and church leaders are doing what they're doing? Why are they doing what they're doing the way they're doing it? Uh, number one, because somebody they admire did it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, it goes, starts with preaching and goes down to other people they admire who did other things. I believe that, uh, you know, I've had people come to me and say, I want to do what you do. And, you know, maybe there's 30 years younger than me. And, and they, they, I, I, I recall one person like 25 and he says, you know, I, I want to live the life you're living. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, uh, I don't want to be rude but why don't you accomplish something? And, and uh, I, I didn't know how else to explain it to him that the difference between you and me is like 30 some years. So in the different, and so in that 30 some years, some things have happened because when I was your age, I, I couldn't live the life I'm living now. Yeah. So I think that people though, they they're inspired by what they see in other people. Okay. That's one reason. I think another reason is it's because it's what they've been trained to do or they think they can do and they feel comfortable doing. Um, And uh, the third thing is because it's what the organization that hired them is asking them to do. Yeah. I, I agree with those. 
I think people are doing what they what they've seen done before and what people expect them to do. And I think there are pastors who are watching who probably feel a sense of conviction that I need to transition my church. And I think some people may be watching saying, okay, great. I'm a small church. I'm a medium-sized church. I'm a large church. But now I feel responsibility as the leader to preach the word and uh, tell the truth on Sundays and also to create context for discipleship, real discipleship community to be happening. But there's an expectation from the people they're leading to continue doing what they're doing. What would you say to a pastor who is watching, who probably feels some sense of conviction or pull from the spirit of God to really start doing what a pastor is supposed to do, preach the truth and then create communities where discipleship is happening. What would you say to that pastor today? Well, I, I think that what I would say is don't worry about your motive, about your uh, reputation or about what your colleagues necessarily think about you, because if you're doing the right stuff, they'll think well of you, basically. But I think that you should do what you know is right and and uh, leave the results to God. I mean, it's sort of like, um, I remember one time talking to Dallas Willard about something along these lines, and he said, you know, ministry is like bowling. And you you get a bowling ball, you know, a shiny bowling ball, and you go to, and you practice and so on, and you have the right shoes and the right clothes and the right shirt. And you get out there and you release the ball. And, you know, then after you release the ball, what people do when they go bowling is they twist their bodies and they, they sometimes fall down and they scream at the ball and everything like that. But he says, the ball is gone. You know, once you let go of the ball, it's out of your hands, right? Hmm. And so I think that uh, what you can do is to do the things that you've been, you know are right and do them as well as you can and leave the results to God. Hmm. Because you can't control it once it's gone. You know, once... You know, the Bible tells us about itself. You know, the word of God does not return void. So yeah. once you speak it out, uh, you can't go out and grab it and bring mm-hmm. it back. Yeah, it's, it's out there. All right. So it is what it is in that sense. I hate that phrase, but I said it. Um, so I'm not sure that answered your question, but. Uh, well, I, I, I think you're I think you're helping uh, direct some people toward more confidence and courage. And um, I, we spend time at church project with pastors from churches a lot who are really feeling called to um, something's being shaken and disrupted in the church world, which I love. Yeah. And um, people know they cannot continue doing things the way they were doing it. But I think it's the gift of God right now mm-hmm. to, strip away all the unnecessary things and move back to our original calling. Um, you know, Exponentials Conference this past year, uh, it was, you know, the idea was reset. And I said, while we're resetting, I think we have to be rethinking. And I hope that in our rethinking, we are returning 
to what originally the church was doing and we are called to do now, I believe. And so I I think, you know, words that you can speak to a pastor to encourage them to, uh, to fulfill our original calling is lead disciple makers, Mm. I think is crucial. And I will say this to you, Bill, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to give you a moment to say anything final you'd like to say Mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to help people know how they can continue learning from you. But I'll tell you uh, over the years here, especially as we were trying to forge new ground and sometimes I didn't know if it would continue working Um, And I knew there were definitely easier ways in our American church context to plant a church that would grow faster and bigger and easier. Um, You had spoken words to me as we're speaking about the power of words. You've spoken words to me that were really encouraging to me. And I think God brought you into my life at the right time to help me continue and continue in the direction that I was going in. And so I'm thankful that God gave uh, me the gift of you, especially for that season. And you spoke words to me. And I'm going to give you a, an opportunity in a moment to speak some words to some pastors who I think want that. So one, thank you for that. And I'll tell pastors and church leaders who are listening, one of the things that God's gifted me with and also called me to pursue is seeking wise counsel of people. I mean, like Bill Hull for me is a gift. Not everyone has access to him like I did and have, but speaking, you know, I've had a lot of good godly leaders in my life who have helped me continue running the race. Paul did that with Timothy, keep going. And I've had some people do that for me and I've needed it, especially in times of discouragement or trying to do something new that other people were resisting. And so uh, for those pastors who are considering, Hey, I need to start preaching truth and calling people to be disciples of Christ. And then I need to create context where discipleship's happening. Um, It's going to take courage and confidence. And I would encourage you to have some people in your life to do that. And I'm going to tell you how Bill can do that in your life, uh, where you can get resources from him and maybe even access to him. But Bill, finally, as as you're caring for, compassionate toward um, leaders and pastors who are listening, what are a few final words in two or three minutes that you would share to them? Well, thank you, Jason. It's wonderful to know that. And, and uh, it's my privilege to be your friend. The, uh, well, I think of this uh, in the last chapter of Dallas Willard's book, The Great Omission, which is a collection of his teachings. He has this chat. He, he talks about how he tried to, you know, at one point, he wanted to try to change the whole world. And so he realized, though, that that was way too much for him. So he sort of gave up on this idea of changing the whole world. And then he thought, maybe what I should do is try to change the church. You know, the whole church. <laughs> and he said, you know, that, that's a pretty thorny thing. You know, it's like trying to cuddle with a porcupine. You know, it's just a little bit different, and it can, you can get stuck. And then he said he came to the conclusion that he wouldn't try to convert the world. He wouldn't try to convert the church. He would just try to convert himself. Hmm. And I believe that that's where it begins. And I would just encourage you as a pastor, convert yourself. 
become the real deal, learn to love the world as Christ loved it, be an example to the flock, and do what you know is right as God has given it to you, and do it as Jeremiah was told, fear the face of no man, chapter one. And do not fear the face of any individual and speak with courage and boldness, which means to speak freely and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So to me, that's my final word today. That to me is some of the best advice I've ever read, and I'll pass it along. That's comforting. I'm going to go back and watch this, and I'm going to capture the end of that and probably... Yeah listen to that over and over. Uh, Bill, thank you for being here. I want people to continue to be able to learn from you. Uh, and so, uh, as Dave mentioned, one of your books, your first, and I think profoundly impactful for me and many, Jesus Christ, Disciple Maker. Uh, Bill has a lot of books on discipleship. If you're a pastor, you're watching this, I would encourage you to get on Amazon and get it right now. It's been crucial for me at Church Project as we started and have continued to cultivate communities that are discipleship communities, our house churches, um, connected under one, one church. We are a church of house churches. Bill's writings have influenced me, Dave, who really presses into uh, discipleship in every arena of our body, uh, influences him. So find some of Bill's books. Start with that one, I would say. Um, you can find more about Bill at BillHull.com. That's correct, Bill? That's correct, yeah, BillHull.com. BillHull.com is something that uh, a website go look at. You'll find his resources. You'll find opportunities for Bill to speak into your life. I would encourage you to do that. Go to BillHull.com, B-I-L-L-H-U-L-L.com. You can find out about him there. Bill started and recently handed over the Bonhoeffer Project, a beautiful thing that's happening in churches around <laughs> Uh, the world. He started it, he directed it, and recently he's handed it off. The leadership is Bill does so well, starts things and and raises up other leaders. So go to BillHull.com, look at some of Bill's books. Also coming up this week and next week in the next few weeks at Exponential are regional conferences. In fact, next week, our team here at Church Project will be joining a lot of people in Houston. And we're going to the Exponential Regional Conference in Houston. And so that information should be popping up on your screen really quickly. So just go to Exponential, look at their regional conferences. They have them in Chicago, in California, in Houston. They're coming up really soon. I would encourage you to take your team to that if you can. Register for that. Go in person if you can. And if you can't, they have some opportunities for you to join them online. But as Bill said, being in the room and the power of the word is always uh, helpful. It is for me. So I'd, I would encourage you to do that as well. Thank you for joining us today. There are other hub shows on the topic of mega micro and um, this hybrid idea, minimalist idea going on. You can find that on Exponential's information. Thanks for being here today. See you soon.